Ladies and gentlemen, um, um, welcome to welcome to this this lecture, which is um, a lecture in the LSC Middle East Centre series, and also in association with the Society for Algerian Studies. Um, my name is John King, and I represent the Algerian Studies Society. Um, this week, um, Jonathan Hill, who is a senior lecturer in Defence Studies at King's College London, um, is going to be talking um, about Algeria and post-colonialism. Um, um, I, for one, hope that the post-colonial theory doesn't become too difficult for me, but if it, if it does, I'll try very, very hard to keep up. Um, he is an Algerianist. He's written um, 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 on remembering the war of liberation, legitimacy and conflict in contemporary Algeria in the series on small wars and insurgencies in, in 2012. But most notably, um, his book is called Identity in Algerian Politics, The Legacy of Colonial Rule, and that was published in 2009. Um, I should also say that he's written about Nigeria um, and he's written about Sufism and the place of Islam in political society in, in, in North and, and Sub-Saharan Africa. So he casts his net wide and to that extent will, I'm sure, bring um, um, a comprehensive and, and perhaps comparative note to, um, to the Algerian issue. And Jonathan, I'll hand over to you. Well, thank you very much. And, and thank you very much to, uh, to you all for coming along um, and for... Uh for, for, for being patient while we got, got ready. Um, yes, I'll be happy to answer any questions you might have about Nigeria. I'm not really going to talk about it, but if, uh, if any crop up, do feel free to ask them. Um, yes, I am a senior lecturer in the Defence Studies Department. Um, in case of you are unfamiliar with King's College London, I and the rest of my department are actually based at the Joint Services Command and Staff College, uh, which is in the pretty village of Shrivenham in South Oxfordshire. Um, and our students are serving military personnel, mostly from British Armed Forces, but also from other countries as well, um, including the odd Algerian every now and again. Um, what I want to talk about this evening um, is to essentially give you an overview of what I, I hope to be my next uh, substantial research project, which I've tentatively entitled Algeria and Post-Colonialism. Um, with that in mind, I'll very much welcome uh, your feedback and thoughts at the end. Um, if anything seems ill thought through, that's because it is, um, and I'm, it's a work in progress. So please do feel free to, to take a, 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 a metaphorical red pen to whatever I say. Now, the main aim of this project will be to chart and examine Algeria's impact on the field of post-colonialism, and the various ways in which the country, or more specifically, key events in its history, notable thinkers, writers, scholars and artists associated with it, and some of its post-independence leaders have directly swayed and inspired those who have contributed to the body of work that now makes up post-colonialism. I'm going to argue that Algeria's impact on post-colonialism um, has taken three main forms, that it's been political, that it's been intellectual, and it's also been ideological. Um, the three categories of effect that I'm going to focus on will form the, uh, the main focus of my talk to this evening. 
and also provide its basic structure. So I'm going to go through each of these in turn. But before I do, there's one or two points of clarification that I would like to, uh, like to make. The first is the role of Algeria in this project. Now, it's undoubtedly a truism, if that is the correct word, to say that Algeria lies at the heart of this project. The clue is definitely in the title. But it's worth emphasising exactly what role it's going to play. For Algeria will be the prism through which these events and the actions and activities of these leaders and intellectuals are bent and refracted. This much is obvious when talking about key historical events and important post-independence leaders. The War of Liberation, for example, remains, above all else, a defining moment in the country's history. It's an Algerian experience, first and foremost. Similarly, President Houari Boumediene is, above all else, an Algerian leader, an Algerian political figure. The links between these events and these individuals are, therefore, indisputable. Moreover, and more crucially, these events and these figures have been shaped and affected by Algeria, what was happening there, what was going on. But this issue becomes slightly more vexed when considering the activities of thinkers, writers, scholars and artists. Certainly, there are many notable intellectuals who have associations and ties to the country. Louis Althusser, the chap behind me, celebrated Marxist philosopher was born in the town of Burmendres or what is now known as Burmuradre I pardon, apologise now for my pronunciation of these things just to the south of Algiers similarly Jacques Derrida was from the settlement of El Bayer directly to the north of the city yet for the purpose of this project of what a world is trying to achieve it is not enough that an intellectual simply has some sort of connection to Algeria. Their work needs to have been affected by their experiences of the country. Algeria needs to have changed them and their way of thinking. The country needs to seep out of the pages of their works, their books, their articles and their letters. This is what I mean when I say that Algeria lies at the heart of this project. The second clarification I would like to make is about Algeria's effect on the field of post-colonialism. In the main, Algeria's impact has been instructive. The War of Liberation has long been lauded as a seminal moment in the global struggle against colonial rule. The National Liberation Front is widely known, uh, or the FLN it is more widely known, has similarly been praised for its role in defeating France. While Presidents Ahmed Bembella and Boumediene are routinely congratulated for their efforts to preserve Algeria's independence and freedom of action, and for the support they have given, or they gave, to anti-colonial movements all over the world. But over the past two decades, a more critical note has crept in. What is written about Algeria is no longer almost exclusively complementary. To be clear, this increased equ equivocation is not largely the result of revisionism. The War of Liberation is not being significantly rethought. 
the early FLN is still recognized as the main agent of Algeria's independence. Rather, this equivocation is more the result of new events and developments which sit uneasily alongside post-colonialism's political and intellectual objectives. And some of what Algeria has previously been praised for. Some of the most notable causes of this more recent concern have been President Ben Jedi's introduction of the Family Code in 1984, the government's repeated refusal to grant Tamazi the same status as Arabic, the army's response to the, to the, uh, to the riots of Black October 1988, the military's annulment of the democratic process in 1992, and its subsequent persecution of the Islamic Salvation Front, the methods employed by the security forces as part of their counter-terrorism and counter-insurgency campaigns against the GIA, AIS, GSPC and AQ, and the ongoing limits that are placed on political and civil rights. And also, and perhaps most pertinently given the events in the region uh, at the moment, the political elite's constant recycling of itself. Indeed, President Bouteflika has himself rarely been out of office since the country achieved independence in 1962. After serving as a Minister of Foreign Affairs from 1963 to 1978, he was one of the frontrunners to succeed Buari Boumedian when he died in December 1978. Then in 1989, after spending six years in exile, he rejoined the FLN Central Committee before finally being elected president in April 1999, a position he has held ever since. Algeria's relationship with post-colonialism, therefore, is increasingly complex. Its impact is taking a growing range of forms, many of which are still instructive, but some are undoubtedly more cautionary. The third clarification I'd like to make is about the timing and originality of this project. 2012 is, of course, Algeria's half-centenary year. Such a milestone not only begs for acknowledgement, but also a fair degree of retrospection. And certainly this is what the project engages in, as measured by its effect on the field of post-colonialism. As a consequence, the project is perhaps inevitably drawn to the dramatic, the remarkable, the extraordinary, and the famous. It privileges those events and developments which have either embodied or ushered in significant changes. And also those individuals who stand out for what they have attempted or achieved. Moreover, a fair bit of attention is paid to the War of Liberation and the early years of Algeria's independence. As it is from the events and developments of this period that post-colonial scholars have drawn their greatest inspiration. And it is in the making of this link between Algeria and post-colonialism and highlighting the various ways in which the country has impacted on post-colonialism that the project's main claim to originality will lie. Certainly, there are already healthy literatures on the war of liberation, the role of the FLN, the conduct of the French armed forces during the war of liberation, the intellectuals and the war, two of the, uh, two of the best books 
uh, I think an English highlighter behind me, the rise of the FIS and the country's descent into civil war, but nothing linking it all together to post-colonialism. And finally, the fourth clarification I would like to make is about post-colonialism itself, and I'm going to keep this brief, so, so hopefully I'll keep John happy. <laughs> um, as Ali Ratsani has noted, the idea of post-colonialism faces formidable problems in mapping a terrain, an object of study, which is both coherent and can command consent among those supposedly working within the field. This is mainly because of its extraordinary diversity. To begin with, it incorporates a vast range of disciplines, including political science, history, sociology, anthropology, economics, geography, linguistics, psychiatry, psychology, and literary studies. And the scholars who are claimed or who claim to be working within post-colonialism similarly dot an equally wide range of theoretical positions from Marxism to feminism to post-structuralism. What binds these scholars together, I think, to the extent that they can be described as working within a field of study, are three key commonalities. Their object of study, their critical engagement with it, and what might be termed their moral agenda, to oppose and or combat the colonial broadly defined. Post-colonial scholars appreciate both the uniqueness and importance of colonialism as a series of global occurrences, events and phenomena. Indeed, and as Robert Young puts it, there was something particular about colonialism. It was not just any old, any old oppression, any old form of injustice, or any old series of wars or territorial oppressions. The extraordinariness of colonialism is a consequence not just of the sheer scale of its articulation, but also the fundamental changes that it wrought on the world. Specifically, colonialism fused many societies with different historical traditions into a history which obliged them to follow the same general economic path. The entire world now operates within the economic system primarily developed and controlled by the West. So says Robert Young. It is the intention to analyse, understand and explain colonialism that underlies and unites works in post-colonialism's field of study. Now with those clarifications and that rather crude back covering over with, I'm going to get on to the, to the Algeria bit. Now, Algeria gained its independence during the great wave of decolonization that swept the world in the wake of the Second World War. Because of the war, the reasons why it was fought and the political realities that it ushered in, a new moral environment, to borrow Robert Jackson's term, was created in which the possession of overseas colonies was no longer deemed acceptable. This environment grew stronger and stronger with each new territory that gained its independence, and with each new independent country that joined the rapidly swelling ranks of the United Nations General Assembly. Yet there is much which sets Algeria's experience of gaining independence apart from that of other colonial territories. Formerly, of course, Algeria wasn't a colony at all, but a part of France proper. 
and it had been since 1848. And this link was fortified by the presence of around a million Europeans, nearly all of whom held French citizenship. But for the Muslim majority, the political, economic and social reality was quite different. Their experience of French rule was scarcely any different from that of the inhabitants of genuine French colonies and or protectorates. Yet Algeria's legal status mattered. When allied to the realities of French rule for the majority, it helps explain the onset and the ferocity of the War of Liberation. More specifically, Algeria was a de jure part of France and a de facto colony. It could never achieve its independence, perhaps in the ways which other colonies and protectorates did, but the impetus for at least some Muslim Algerians to demand and pursue independence was just as strong as it was for Moroccans, Cote d'Ivoirians and others. Indeed, Algeria's experience of achieving independence differed from that of most other colonies, and it is these differences which together render Algeria's experience, if not unique, then extremely rare, that explain the extent of the country's impact, political impact, on post-colonialism. To begin with, the Algerian people were not given their independence. Rather, they had to earn it. Thousands of them actively participated in the armed struggle, either by joining the FLN or helping it. And many, many more had to endure the hardships, dangers and uncertainties that the seven and a half year war inevitably created. And by the time it was over, somewhere between half a million and a million of them had been killed. A further 723,000 people had fled the countryside for the cities. Another 300,000 had gone to Tunisia, Morocco or France. And between 200,000 and 400,000 were detained for various lengths of time in any one of the internment camps which sprang up from the summer of 1955 onwards. Of course, other peoples had to fight for their independence as well. So it was in Indochina and Aden and Kenya and Angola. Yet some, like the Mau Mau, failed to achieve their goal and none had to endure quite the hardships and suffering, I would argue, that the Algerians did. Then there is the scale of, the, of what the FLN actually achieved. It forced one of the world's great powers to completely abandon its stated position that Algeria would remain forevermore a part of France. It forced one of the great powers to accept its demands which remained virtually unchanged from the day it first declared them in 1954. It forced one of the world's great powers to go against the wishes of nearly a million of its citizens living in Algeria, and also a significant portion of its citizens in mainland France. It forced one of the world's great powers to go against the wishes of its armed forces, leading to a military putsch in April 1961, led by these two generals, and nearly resulting in civil war in France itself. 
and it helped bring about the collapse of the Fourth Republic, the creation of the Fifth Republic, and the return to power of Charles de Gaulle, first as Premier and then as President. To be absolutely clear, France did not release Algeria lightly. On the contrary, it fought desperately to keep it to get to, to, to preserve Algerie Francaise. And its determination was only strengthened by its recent experiences. Humiliated in the Second World War, both by the fall of Paris in a month and the subsequent collaboration between the Third Reich and the Vichy regime. Humiliated in Indochina, which culminated in the debacle of Dien Bien Phu, and humiliated at the Suez as well, when it felt betrayed by its British allies uh, and let down by the Americans. As a result of all this, France wanted to desperately to show the world that it was still a force to be reckoned with. So it brought this determination and all of the counterintelligence and counter-terrorist lessons that it learned in Vietnam and had picked up along the way fully to bear on the National Liberation Front. Indeed, what the FLN achieved was nothing short of remarkable. Its actions, along with the stoicism of the Algerian people, were an inspiration to colonise peoples all over the world. For one, the FLN's campaign, uh, of which uh, this gentleman, Sadi Yassef, uh, was part, offered clear instruction as to what a nationalist movement or anti-colonial group needed to do to succeed. It offered guidance, a blueprint on how to proceed, on how to wage an armed struggle, on the need to gain and maintain the backing of your core constituency, on the importance of gaining and this is really critical, international political support. But there was more to the FLN's achievement than this, for by its actions it showed that the European imperial powers were fallible, that even what appeared to be the most stable, one of the most stable and secure regimes could in time be swept away that political and material disadvantages, no matter how great they seemed, could be overcome. That the colonized peoples of Africa, the Middle East and elsewhere were not helpless or clueless or passive, that they need not be victims, that they could be agents to an extent of their own destinies. What the FLM provided in short was inspiration. The war in Algeria very quickly sparked a debate in France that was as notable for its ferocity as it was for its scope and its longevity. In the main, this debate was initiated, led and sustained by intellectuals, with an intellectual here defined as someone who not only occupied the status of thinker, but also intervened often at personal risk in public debates. It is this public element that distinguishes an intellectual from an ordinary, humble academic like myself. The term also refers, of course, to a broader group of people, as it includes journalists, writers, editors and artists, not just those working in universities. The debate they engaged in was conducted in an array of public forums, 
articles and opinion pieces were published in newspapers and periodicals, like Jean-Paul Sartre's Le Temps Moderne. Books and pamphlets were written, lectures were delivered, marches and rallies were organised, declarations were made, condemnations delivered, committees and networks were set up. In truth, of course, there was never any one debate. Rather, there was a vast range of discussions and dialogues which, as you would expect, given the length of the war, developments during it, the forever shifting community of debaters, and the rise and fall of their respective arguments, changed and evolved over time. Some topics were simply rendered irrelevant or redundant by the course of events. One of the earliest to excite real disagreement between those sympathetic to the cause of Algerian independence and to be definitively resolved was about the competing nationalist organisations. Some intellectuals like Francis Jeanson and Jean-Paul Sartre very quickly threw their weight behind the newly created FLN. Others backed Masali Hadj's Algerian national movement. Masali Hadj was a uh, an old campaigner for the cause of Algerian independence, while others still argued that both groups should be supported. This debate continued from the moment the war began in 1954 until the summer of 1957, when it was finally settled by the FLN's massacre of around 800 MNA supporters in the village of Melusa. Now, notwithstanding the ebb and flow of topics such as this, others were returned to time and again throughout the war and beyond. And some of the most enduring were whether Algeria should have its independence, if so, what its relationship with France should actually be, what should happen to the European settlers living in the country, was the French army justified in its use of torture, and what should become of those, if anything, of those who carried it out. The breadth of this debate reflected the range of ideological backgrounds of those involved and the variety of roles that they came to play. For intellectuals did not just take part in debate, seek to enlighten the general public on who was involved and what was happening, or seek to sway popular opinion one way or another. They certainly chose sides, and some became vigorous participants. All were engaged, penning an article for Le Temps Moderne, or organising a public lecture was a form of engagement, of course. But a good number went further than that and directly assisted either the French authorities or the FLN. Jacques Soustel, you can just about see in the middle there, was a celebrated anthropologist and a former general secretary of the French Union of Intellectuals Against Fascism when he became Governor General of Algeria on the 25th of January 1955. He in turn charged fellow anthropologist Germain Tillon with the task of getting more Muslim Algerian children into primary education. And she continued to do this long after Soustel had been replaced in February 1956. Mouloud Fouran, the celebrated Algerian novelist, taught in some of the social centres that Tion 
helped establish until he was murdered by OAS gunmen in the closing months of the war. Pierre Bourdieu served in Algeria as a national service conscript, during which time he not only developed his passion for anthropology and Kabylia, a region in the east of the country, but also conducted the first of the fieldwork that would later inform his concept of habitus. Franz Fanon, on the other side, joined the FLN in 1955, putting his training as a psychiatrist to the, to the organization's uh, use on the organization's behalf, and later acted as the provisional government's ambassador to Ghana. Finally, Francis Jeanson set up a network of couriers to collect money from Algerian expats living in France for the FLN, helped smuggle FLN members in and out of the country, and encourage and assist young French servicemen to uh, desert. And this, of course, is just a small sample of the intellectuals who were more directly involved and the types of roles that they played. Now, charting Algeria's intellectual impact on post-colonialism can be measured in a variety of ways. To begin with, it can be traced through those works which have, are now required reading for anybody working within the field. Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, Albert Camus' The Outsider, Henri Alleg's La Kestel, Jean-Paul Sartre's Colonialism and Neocolonialism, Pierre Bourdieu's Sociologie de l'Algérie et Travailleurs et Travailleuses, and many, many more. Yet clearly Algeria's intellectual impact is broader than that, for it can also be seen in the debates that it has sparked and contributed to. For what happened in Algeria also inspired intellectuals of all disciplinary hue to give serious thought to questions of imperialism and power, independence and liberty, culture and identity, place and belonging. And finally, there is Algeria's ideological impact on post-colonialism. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this too has been greatly influenced by the war of liberation and can be traced in the main through the ideology of Islamic socialism, which was the creation of the country's first two presidents, Ahmed Ben Bella, and in particular, Huari Boumedian. The imprint of the war on this ideology can clearly be seen in what it calls for and also strives to achieve. For a start, it places considerable emphasis on autarky, on the pursuit and maintenance, as far as possible, of economic independence, political freedom of action, and self-sustainability. That Algeria's leaders should develop and embrace an ideology which places a premium, such a premium on liberty, is hardly surprising, given the enormous sacrifices the Algerian people made to free themselves from French rule. This emphasis on autarky was not entirely aspirational, but also driven by certain practical realities. For by the time Algeria finally won its independence on the 3rd of July 1962, the vast majority of the European inhabitants had left, with most heading for France and some to other destinations. Crucially, though, their departures meant 
that in the space of a relatively short period of time, Algeria lost most of its doctors, lawyers, accountants, engineers, academics, managers, and other professional workers. This greatly exacerbated the damage to the economy and left Ben Bella and Boumedian little option to, but to essentially rebuild from scratch. Finally, the exodus of the Europeans also largely solved the problem of what would become of them after uh, independence and also removed a significant likely cause of continued French interference in the country. Second, Bembella's and Boumedian's embrace of socialism was an acknowledgement of the help the FLN had received from communist parties and countries around the world. The FLN had waged its armed campaign with weapons from Czechoslovakia. It had bought them with money raised by Francis Jensen and other leftists. And it had only succeeded in driving France to the negotiating table because of the international recognition and support it received from China and the Soviet Union. And just as the communist governments lined up behind the FLN, so the NATO powers backed Paris, certainly in the early years. Yet Bembella's and Boumedian's embrace of socialism was not simply an acknowledgement of who had helped them and who had not. They also supported, again unsurprisingly, its emphasis and calls for re revolution and denunciations of colonialism. It was in the spirit of rebellion that both men helped and assisted a range of anti-colonial movements, from Polisario in the neighbouring Spanish Sahara to the Black Panther Party, which briefly set up its headquarters in Algiers. The country also, under these two men, became directly and actively involved in the organisation of African unity and the non-aligned movement. The ideology of Islamic socialism was hailed and applauded by a range of left-wing intellectuals, including Sartre, de Beauvoir, and also Jensen. Not only were they pleased, obviously, that colonialism had finally been defeated, but they also interpreted Algeria's embrace of Islamic socialism as evidence of communism's progress, and also the inexorable decline of capitalist powers. And some, like Jensen, certainly initially at least, viewed the war in, as a revolutionary act, and the FLN as a revolutionary force, and hoped that its actions and success might be sufficient to rouse the French working class and also the French Communist Party, which he had left, but was still broadly sympathetic to, from their torpor leading to revolutionary action and change in France itself. Indeed, Algeria was viewed as evidence of and a possible catalyst for worldwide revolutionary change. Okay, finally some conclusions. Now what I've tried to, uh, try to do is make the case essentially that Algeria has exerted a profound influence on the field of study of post-colonialism. I've argued that the country's legacy um, on this field is at once political, intellectual, and ideological. 
key events from Algeria's history, most notably the War of Liberation, have provided both encouragement and example to anti-colonial movements all over the world. Not only did the National Liberation Front show what was possible, but also provided instruction to what it did to like-minded bodies on how they could proceed. The FLN's efforts to free Algeria also inspired intellectuals of a range of disciplinary hue. Indeed, the war, or more specifically, the reasons why it was fought and how it was conducted, led to the outpouring of ideas, arguments and concepts which are still shaping academic thinking and popular attitudes today. Finally, such was the cost of achieving independence that successive Algerian governments tried initially at least to limit the country's reliance on others as much as possible. The political and economic policies they pursued were an inspiration to leftist intellectuals and activists all over the world. And they included providing direct financial, political and military support to the non-aligned movement and also anti-colonial movements. Now what I haven't talked about, which I mentioned at the start, are the ways in which Algeria's reputation within post-colonialism is perhaps or has perhaps changed over the past 20 years. That was mainly due for reasons of space, but I would be happy to answer any questions should anybody have any about that. Thank you very much. <laughs>